Well, today I'm very excited to have as my guest on on-site Andrew Bradfield. Andrew is the principal of Orange Management, which is a Manhattan-based real estate developer. Over 18 years of residential condominium experience in New York City. And when I read the website, it says he's uh, in the mar- in highly competitive luxury condo market. Um, the, dis- the company distinguishes itself via the threefold approach and an eye for overlooked development sites, the use of sophisticated design and the material selection and the deployment of marketing strategies that are precisely coordinated with the nuances of each project. Uh, Today, I'm going to speak to Andrew, who I've known for over 20 years, and uh, we'll find out a little bit about development in New York City, where he sees the market and specifically related to his project. So, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. It's really great to have you on the show. Welcome. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your business proposition as a developer and what kind of separates you from a lot of the other developers in New York City. I think one of the big differentiators is that we've been doing condos for, it's actually, I need to update the website because it's more like 20 years, but uh, that's given through two major cycles and, and multiple downturns. I'll treat uh September 11th, not as a, a cyclical downturn, but more as a uh, bear market for a temporary bear market. So certainly we, we've taken our lumps over the years and we really have a sense of how to do a risk mitigated condominium. And while we do, we do some rental projects as well, we do some repositioning of uh, existing buildings as well as uh, we've done one small ground up rental, but the more time consuming aspect of, of our business is, is the condominium projects. So they, they take, they have a a, a long, long, uh, a long pre-flight trajectory and then, uh, and then a long uh, tail at the end. So we requires a lot of stamina and I think, you know, we've done, I don't remember the exact count, but it's 12 or 13 condo projects over the past now 20 years. So we're in the middle of um, this pandemic and, you know, you said you've taken your lumps and, you know, you've experienced past crises, 2001, 2008. What have you learned from those past pandemics? Well, actually they weren't pandemics, but they were crises. What have you learned from those that is kind of, you look back and you say, oh, that was really good that we did this and we learned from that and it's going to help us, you know, navigate this one. The main thing I think is that you can take a a longer term perspective because you've seen cycles uh, respond. The the main way it factors in, I think, is that our our outlook has been, for recent kind of projects, has been much more conservative in terms of making sure that you're not uh, as vulnerable to sales within a a particularly short period of time. So if you need to sell your entire building within a one-year sales horizon, that's your underwriting. You're going to be very vulnerable to cyclical moments. So last few projects, we've made sure to have uh, the capitalization and the senior lender relationships as well as equity, equity partner relationships that allow much 
longer marketing periods if needed, if need be, because uh, you know we one of our one of our projects during the uh, 2008 downturn, if we had held on, you know, we it was a project that one two three third Avenue at the corner of Third Avenue and 14th Street, 20 story 50 unit building, we closed our uh, construction loan probably a month before the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy so right uh, right as we hit the hit the precipice and you know coming doing sales in 2010 was a very gruesome prospect if we had been able to manage uh, you know we had mesdat we had uh, a senior with a, a very constrained extension provisions if we had been able to sell on a longer slower velocity trajectory we would have we do we actually we we're proud to say we didn't lose any money although the market was down 20 percent or more from where we underwrote it but we had we had the margin and and certain construction costs were somewhat mitigated during the downturn so we were able to manage that process to you know on budget on schedule but if we had had the ability to market for an extra year we could have had a very meaningful return because that would put up sales into 2012 where the market was really starting to rebound. What's the average time a project takes from start to finish? Oh, I think a lot of people will tell you start to finish is a, is a very uh, subjective perspective. We often start underwriting projects that don't even go into contract for a considerable period of time. If you have to, if you're working with a, a seller who might be off market or uh, uh, with uh, unreasonable pricing, I, I mean, one, two, three, third is another example. We 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 worked with those sellers for a year and a half, maybe two years before we were in contract. We've got a current project at uh, 76 Skirmerhorn Street called the Simon, right at the border between downtown Brooklyn and Brooklyn Heights, where the contract itself was very long. We had about a, mo- a year and two months of contract period. So what that means, you're going to start underwriting and pre-development before you even have financing or contracts in hand. You might be working for uh, two years before you you put a shovel in the ground. So that's construction, depending on the size of the project. You know, it's going to you can count on somewhere between 18 months and, and 24 months. Uh, you know, we've got uh, delays right now on, on our Skirmerhorn Street project because of COVID, but you know, we were pretty much on, we were on an 18-month, 19-month construction timeline. That takes you up to about, you're at four years, and then, you know, if your sales process, has, has, if you've been in selling into an up market where you can pre-sell and you're able to close units within a, short period of time of having your your certificates of occupancy you could be done selling in say another six months but the past few markets have been a little less than robust so let's say you make that a year to a year and a half that's you're getting up to five and a half six years when you add in your permanent your obligation to provide a permanent certificate of occupancy that gets you into the seven year territory you know, that's the realistic time commitment, and uh, your your equity partners are not in it for that road. Your certainly your senior lenders aren't in it for that long a road. Yeah, you know, so the developer is a uh, buck stops here type of role, and you're 
and you have to face the fact that it is going to be a, a long trajectory. It seems like based on like the last cycles, right, we saw a major downturn in 2001, then in 2008, now in 2020. It seems like you really have to time these markets because, you know, markets, they go up, they go down. You really have to be lucky and time a market perfectly to do exceptionally well in development. You know, unless there is some extenuating circumstance where you're buying the land really cheap or it's a prime site. But just hearing you talk about the cycles and the amount of time to develop, it seems like it's incredibly risky. And a lot of the risk is market risk based on timing as to where the cycle is. Those risks can be mitigated. We've had projects where we pre-leased a commercial component, and that offsets your reliance on the, on the residential revenues. The point really is that if you can make yourself less time-dependent on a specific marketing window, like the, as you know very well, having done a lion's share of uh, new development in, in, in New York City, if you, you know, your goal is to have, have contracts for 75 to ideally 100% of the units by the time you're, you have your certificate of occupancy, your initial TCO, if you use that as your base case, you'll likely be subject to the, to, as you said, this, this gruesome market risk. You know, much more mitigated outlook is to allow for, if your underwriting can allow for longer hold periods while you're, while you're selling, that you're not dependent upon that particular marketing window. You can extend the market window. For example, today's market, once the real estate sales are reopened, if you are, need to sell out your building by the end of this year, it doesn't matter if you have 20% sold or 80% sold, you're going to have a hard time. Even if there isn't a collapse of pricing, and I think the universal consensus is that the next phase is a pricing discovery where there's going to be some distressed transactions into the summer, but that's not going to say what the market is, right? The market needs to be open. There needs to be buyers who feel like they can actually safely go to look at apartments, look at sales centers, and then you'll discover, then you, at least in the residential market, you'll have price discovery that will provide clarity and, and to what the outlook is. So, you know, we're not, we're not even going to have that for two or three months, maybe not into the fall. Our outlook is that, I'll go on record here, but we think schools will open in some modified format in the fall. Uh, it may be a delayed opening and it may be a half time, quarter time physical presence. But we, we think that there, they will be a, there's a lot riding on having some physical presence. That's right. not to be the case. But if it is, that, that will certainly help the real estate market because that brings people back into the city, uh, back in, in, in the cases of people who are buyers uh, into their apartments that are not suited to their existing needs. So people who need a newer apartment, a larger apartment, smaller apartment. Uh, and that that drives demand for sure, it's like people needing to change their. But still, I, I you know I think the market dynamic, aside from you know, we also have an election year 
component adding uncertainty in this particular election year it adds uncertainty not just about the general political uh, outlook but also tax policy uh, would be different under under Biden versus uh, Trump re-election. So you've got a lot of uncertainty that pushes decision making out. So you, you know you still might not even have real price discovery until after the election. So or, or maybe in the, the, the spring market. So uh, right. yeah, the general outlook is yeah. If you if you're in a position where you can wait until into two, 2021 and not you know take I, I think no one is going to be snubbing no residential developer or secondary market owner is going to be snubbing offers that are modestly discounted, right? You have to, we're going to be taking seriously uh, modestly discounted offers. But our view is that the majority, not by means everyone, but greater than 50% condo developers in the current market are much better capitalized than they were in 2008. And they should be able to hold on for longer than the distressed projects did in that era. So that is going to provide some price support. I mean, Manhattan market, we're, we're not in the Manhattan market uh, and any projects at the moment is something I'm happy to not be worried about because I, we've always focused on efficient unit types, sizes, and locations. So that we, we, we tried to deliver as, as you read on the copy from our website, we focus on locations that can provide a high-end luxury, can support a high-end luxury product, but they may not be on Bond Street in NoHo. Um, they're, right. Or, or on, so let, let's, let, let's talk about the business proposition, right? So the developers come in all shapes and sizes, and you, know, you, you clearly have a clear business model. You know, but there are developers out there that do low-income housing and are very successful. Then there are developers who only build very, very, very high-end product for the market. How did you get into the marketplace that you're in right now? What drove you to that section and that niche of the market? We actually started doing loft conversions, Tribeca, Soho, Chinatown. And when was that? First project was 1999. So how 1999, Tribeca, Soho, I mean, I was in Tribeca and Soho. They were not nearly the neighborhoods they are today. How did you get into that? What was your first deal? And how do you become a real estate developer? Like what prompted you to get into the business and start converting loft buildings in the late 90s? The first project started in 1999. That was a, actually is now a, um, being developed as a condominium. We bought it as a uh, rental, 465 Washington Street. My background was doing mortgage-backed securities at Credit Suisse in the mid-90s. And after a couple twists and turns, I ended up working with a group of investors as the capital markets person. But as you get more into it, you see all the aspects from the nitty gritty of construction. Yeah, I, I, we, you know, from our outlook, if you're going to play the role of developer, you need to have uh, construction experience, financing experience, marketing experience, and that's that's critical. So we 
that was really the segue from a capital markets role with some investors on a, a group of investors on a series of projects and segueing into more mid 2000s into independent uh, with more LP type uh, limited partner type of investors. So you talked a little bit about the requirements and necessary skill sets for a developer. Do you go to school for that? How does one, let's say I want to become a developer. I'm an 18 year old kid going to college and that's something I want to pursue. How, what would your advice be? Oh God, that is a tough one. There are a lot of places to be on the food chain. It's hard to be an independent developer. If you go to work for Related or you go to work for uh, TF Cornerstone, you are working for someone else. Actually, that, a, good, a good example is um, Asher Abulsara, who worked at Two Trees, uh, clearly working for someone else, but great exposure, great experience, great, great connections. And I haven't even met him, but I just use a, uh, I guess I've met his equity partner on a, on a prospective project, but that seems like a great way to go. We did not go that route. Certainly the easiest route is to have uh, family resources or that you uh, come be, from money or, or, or be the son of a developer. <laughs> being, the, being the son or daughter of a developer is a, that's a time honored uh, route. Right. The, the other time honored route is uh, to be a effective salesperson. So that if you can raise money, whether your management skills are up to snuff, become le- is less uh, important because if you have, I mean, this is a, the barrier to entry is is just the checkbook, right? So, so, uh, so how do you manage to go into a room? How do you raise money? How do you convince people to you know write that check and believe yeah. in your deal? <laughs> well, our our approach really is. With the salesman skill, I actually did uh, institutional sales when I was at Credit Suisse. Um, I did uh, mortgage-backed securities, but also derivatives and foreign fixed income. I had a background in sales, but it is that type of sales work is much. It's not about the being people's best friend, being uh, the visionary, being the a golf buddy, but rather it's it's really a uh, analytics-driven uh, approach. So you, you want to make clear that this is a project where you've, you've thought of all the angles, that you've underwritten it from a senior lender's perspective, from a marketing perspective, from a, a building code perspective, from a constructability and construction cost perspective. So for all, with all of that, that's a different type of uh, salesmanship. And, and that's our approach is really we don't go out to sell investors until we have something that's really dialed in and that's that's tougher it's it's certainly we consider and we have had a a business development person who is much more salesy and that really didn't work so it's just the the approach that and and part of it is you know we're certainly we put our own money up which is my personal money into every project which you know it, it makes for a certainly a stronger case for good faith commitment to your projects when it's your family and your family's uh, finances are at stake. So, uh, our, yeah, our, right. our, 
really is just uh, heavily underwritten. You won't you won't see like a a pitch book that's got lots of holes in it. Or, or like I'm not sure what we're going to do with that, or have we thought of everything? We're we're really going to present our deal memos are very very thorough. So I mean, they should be in a position so they could go straight to a investment committee. That's our right. So a lot of people are saying they think New York is over, people are fleeing the city, everyone's going to Florida, better tax haven states, uh, cities that are better run. You know, New York City right now feels a lot like the New York City that I came to many years ago with more homeless people on the streets, less retail filled, and a lot of people are very negative in New York City. What's your opinion and where do you see the opportunity? I think there are a lot of causes for, for concern. My, my initial outlook was very negative for the exact reasons that you're talking about. A street-level activation that is, you know, already on, was already on the de- decline, but now with a, a real shock to the system of, of taking you know, even the casual people off the street, the fact that we're going to have a say 20 to 30 percent decline in even if we're back fully open 20 to 30 percent decline in the not overnight population of uh, of new york city so that's to say the people who come in commute for jobs or commute for uh, entertainment if that's going to decline uh, on the job side because either the jobs have been curtailed entirely or uh, they've been converted into work work from home uh, positions or work remote work positions, and you combine that with a decline in tourism and shopping traffic, that should reduce the daytime population by could be thirty percent. Some some might argue that that would be a good thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's uh, there may be some quality of life improvements, but there's certainly going to be some. You know, it's it's going to be hard on. Well, so that that's factor number one is less dollars being spent in on a daily basis. Factor number two, you've right. got these are I mean, these are my the the negatives that I at the outset was very uh, taken by. Number two, we've got a budget imbalance at the state and local levels, which are going to translate into, and particularly with, we've got a, a mayor who is progressive from a transfer payment perspective, for, from a social program perspective. He's going to be less willing to make cuts of you know, vital community services. We also have a mayor who is an outgoing mayor who is not, really bound to any constituency uh, for, for re-election campaigns, which means he, he can make, it's not hard for him to go by his legacy uh, outlook, right? So the legacy outlook where he wants to be remembered as the defender of the less fortunate. And that sounds like a simple formula for higher real estate taxes. So I, I, I think we're for sure going to see that. And the big question is whether there could be a, a mid-year increase. It wouldn't be an increase in the in assessments, but an increase in, in the tax rate. That could be devastating. Uh, Bloomberg actually did it after it was. It must have been after the financial crisis, 
in like 2000. It was not immediately after, but he did a mid-year increase, which was, um, it's a blow. It wasn't as bad. Do you remember after September 11th, he did a, uh, a devastating, it was like a 20 to 25% increase across the board, but it was not, it was done on the annual basis, which is to say in, in, in the summer, so July 1 taxes. So this right. likely, we're looking at it, the real estate tax increase is will be July 2021 announced in say May 2021, but there's a possibility of it coming earlier in November, which would be very rough. I, we hope that that's not going to be the case. Um, mm-hmm. But so you've got that on the horizon. You've got this sheer dollar uh, volume not flowing through New York City, and then you have this amplified effect of of the the service industries that support the people who are not spending money, the people who support those, those industries, you know, it's an amplified effect. And the thing you mentioned uh, that is, is certainly uh, a big concern is going to be homelessness and crime are big negative uh, elements and probably in less core areas. So those three things, they are big negatives for, and then I guess the fourth thing, which I already mentioned, is that you've got massive levels of uncertainty, both with uh, COVID and the uh, vaccine timing, the whether, you know, whether there's even a vaccine at all, uh, the, <laughs> the you, treatment, treatment yeah. uh, prospect. I mean, I think... I, I, I wish people would focus less on the vaccine because, you know, what's going to happen is gonna, there's going to be a disappointment in the Moderna, whoever, whatever, whoever leading candidates there are for the vaccine. It's going to it will be a, a crushing sentiment blow to, you know, to the entire world, uh, specifically the United States. I wish they would focus more on uh, treatments because that seems like that's developing effective treatments which is effectively what happened with uh, HIV. That seems like a much more uh, successful route to to focus on. But and I know, right. I know I know our pharmaceutical industry is working on that as well. But it's not been the focus of the media. So uh, you've got that uncertainty plus the election, which could affect your taxes and forgetting about your, your general outlook about Trump. It's, it sounds so positive. I'm I'm in such a good mood now. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, and then I'll, so then I've I've mitigated my perspective based on a few things. So number one is that look, I don't know who the audience is for this podcast, but I, I'm guessing it's people who are interested in for sale, mostly for sale, high quality New York City real estate. So one of the things that really sunk in from that perspective is a that the markets this that market segment the 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 acquire the buying component of that sector is those people in those positions certainly there are restaurant owners who buy condos and hotel operators who buy condos but by and large that market is driven by finance and professionals doctors may have a hard time. That is for sure. Uh, they're going to be with the curtailment of elective surgery. That has been, I'm sure, a big blow to the pocketbooks. of. Uh, I, I, have, I have a friend whose husband is a neurosurgeon. He's just doing COVID work now. So he's still getting paid, but it's, it's not the brain surgery uh, 
fees that he normally makes, right? So, but that I mean across the board. So you've got, but other than that, you got attorneys who are working at full clip, even from work remotely. Uh, you've got finance people. I've got a trader friend. He says, you know, I'm sure you've heard lots of uh, finance stories that people are just working harder, uh, as hard if not harder than they do on a normal basis. So the condo buying segment of the population is not going to be so badly hit by layoffs. That's a positive. Uh, Interesting. The other positive is that a lot of those people are going to be, and the the tech people certainly as well, right? We we have, in the last two projects we've done, we have so many tech people, uh, you know, very highly paid tech people um, buying all levels of uh, all, all price points. So that's positive. The other, the other positive is that with COVID, the, the, the personal dimension of COVID is that if you are in a rental, there's, there's uncertainty there. If you're in a housing stock that is less than mint, uh, which is most of the housing stock, uh, you've got an apartment that ha- might not have as good ventilation or as good HVAC or as good uh, insulation from your neighbors and may not have enough space for, for remote working. There's already pent up demand. I think, uh, you know, we don't, we didn't really go into the going into, uh, you know, the first quarter of 2020 was just like, I, 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 we were, we were really had turned the corner on our project. At least we signed seven contracts this is a, the, the, the project on Skirmoran Street is a 59 residential unit building. You signed seven contracts in February, and it is clear that there was demand. There was just we had traffic without, without really pushing it. We had an enormous amount of traffic on a weekly basis. We didn't really need to push it, our advertising because we had just so much uh, interest. And I'm not. I don't. I'm not limiting it to our project. This is sort of what we've heard across the board. Is that, and I'm sure you can attest to it, that the first quarter shows that there is pent up demand. There is a feeling that pricing is. You know, I think I one of my old adages about New York City for sale real estate, uh, residential real estate, is that it is just completely sentiment driven. You know, a lot of people and we always do sort of buy uh, buy versus rent analysis like oh it's it's sometimes it's can even be cheaper to to own rather than to to rent but that is not what drives the market in in our in my view is it's much more sentiment driven and the sentiment is simply yeah i i agree a hundred percent it's like consumer confidence it's you know a hundred percent i say buying an expensive apartment is a completely irrational experience (laughs) <laughs> and and we have to kind of rationalize the irrational experience to make people feel like they're not wasting their mon- money frivolously. And we do that by showing comps and showing that the next door neighbor was more stupid or as stupid as they were and make them feel good about their irrational purchase. Well, I put it slightly differently. I, I say it just it's, it's one dimension entirely for the sentiment, which is, is it going to be lower later? Or, or the, the opposite, the, the contrapositive is, is the market going to be higher later? I should buy now because the market is going to be higher later. And well, I can always almost guarantee that the market is going to be higher at some point in the future. I think yeah, as long as you're not you know, in a position where you have to sell when it's lower. 
you hey, should the, be just fine. That is true. But the point is, in the next, when I, I'm interested in moving, I'm interested in, and I can re up my rental, I can move to another rental, I can uh, stay in my existing apartment, which, you know, every person grows out, outgrows their apartment. I guess there's you know, some people who need to outgrow, might not be the right word, sometimes they want to shrink their, their footprint. But everyone at a certain point is is ready to uh, move on to a different apartment. The question is, in the next year, is it going to be lower? And if you think it is, that's a big hurdle for for transactions. So I think that my sense is that in first quarter of this year, you have the pent up demand and and a sense that pricing had come down and was stable. There was that that brought people out. So that situation hasn't changed. Uh, the sentiment question is, is a big one. Oh, I, I could actually. I, I have one other negative, uh, which I, I also I guess, <laughs> keep them coming. <laughs> well, it's you know I, the the media will focus on sensational foreclosure stories, right? Right. Or distressed auction sales of like of uh, blue chip residential real estate so there'll be stories like that but i don't think they're going to be very many and that's judging by what happened that happened in 2008 2009 but it's really that's not going to be grist for the negative press mill it's going to be you know they're going to have so so i think that is that i is initially one of my concerns i think there, there there'll be one-offs but it's not going to be like uh a nightmare scenario along those lines. So the positives we've got, uh, the people who buy apartments by and large still have their jobs. We've got interest rates at record lows. We've got pent up demand that is, you know, manifest and there's no, no question that there are people who want to move. We've got an interest in improving your housing stock because you are going to be spending more time there whether that's mandated by your, your, your employment or just by your own personal decision because you're, you're, you're looking, everyone's looking to nest more, right? So uh, we didn't talk about the people leaving the city, but I do have a, a thought process about that as well. Certainly, they're gonna, we know people are leaving the city and some may not come back, right? If you had your very expensive, you know, beyond your means, rental that had a lease expiring in the end of April, you might consider just, and you have, you know, opportunities in a place that has more greenery or more access to uh, parks, what have you. You, That's for sure. There's going to be people who don't come back. And I've tried to try to think about this existentially, like is density, and this has been a topic that, you know, the media has certainly taken up recently, but I, this is the first question I asked after after the shutdown was like, New York is based on density. New York City is based upon the thesis that density is not just econ- e- environmentally positive because it's you know, take a smaller footprint on, on Earth. We, you know, we have more consolidated, uh, more efficient living spaces, but it's it is the thesis behind what makes New York the magnet that it is. The reason, the reason it's a magnet for 
business, commerce, uh, and media is because you could get such good talent employee-wise, and they come here because it's a fun place with things to do, but very much so because of meeting other people. That is a, a magnet, and it's an addictive component to New York. Stuff to do and people to to do the stuff with. And even going through a wave of very strong pessimism, I, I really have come to, you know, I, I just, if you're going to make a bet, right, you're going to make, or everyone's just got a finger in the wind, anyone you talk to about what's going to happen. But if I make a bet, I say, you know what? Yeah, there's people will leave, but New York is going to maintain, I mean, it's, there's, there aren't any other places where you can meet as many people. Maybe the and this is a and again that's a that's certainly a negative from COVID, right? Meeting lots of people is a existential negative from COVID, right? But right. presuming that there's some whether it's a vaccine or a confidence that treatment is can get you to full recovery, even if you're in that segment of the population that is really susceptible that or that they could get a very bad version of the of the COVID. As soon as they, there's confidence about that, it's, it, I mean, no one can beat that about New You can't beat that in San Francisco. You can't beat that in Los Angeles. You know, Paris and London perhaps are close with, the, you know, this like interact, you know, the, the, this density of, of people interacting with each other. It's a uh, natural thing. And, that, and that, that has glue because it's friendships, relationships, friendships, business uh, associations. And that keeps people, in my mind, uh, that will become a, a glue that, you know, you know the people who have left, and maybe they've left, I mean, particularly the, the very wealthy, they may have left, but they are still probably own their real estate. And if you get past the threshold of the safety, that's the thing that New York, and that's our signature asset, is that you can get that human interaction that you know if, if you've ever lived in la i, I spent a summer there it is a metropolis there are lots of people there are lots of creative people but you don't interact with them in the same way you don't there's not the ease of interaction and and intermingling yeah i mean it's that's definitely a huge factor in new york city i agree i agree wholeheartedly and i think that's you know as you said part of the attraction of coming to the city being amongst peers, being inspired, and kind of feeling the energy of the street, um, and being you know motivated and driven by that. One of the first things I read about when I was moving to New York in the '90s was New York. The energy is right there, coming up out of the pavement, and I'm sure you've heard that this Naftali uh, quote, but it's really. Nikki Neftali was doing a, on a, a podcast, a real deal podcast a, a month or so ago. And he pointed out this thing, which I, I, I was the first thing I thought of when, when, when you think of September 11th, which was after September 11th, I was living in Tribeca and saw the towers come down. And the, the word was, oh, no one will, no one will ever want to live in a, in, a, in a building higher than 10 stories ever again in New York. And, and and I mean that was the, that was the outlook, and sure enough, what you know you have you've got 
super talls, which are, I mean, may not be the most robust market segment at the moment, but certainly the amount of dollars that have gone into uh, acquisitions and super talls is that's uh, it's, it just shows that it's not short memory. It's more just like you adjust, and uh, I think it's an adjustment more than that. Yeah. So I. The part of you, uh, your, your, the notes you sent me that got me very interested in is like uh, making predictions about changes in uh, in architecture and design. Uh, so I, I, I want to, if you, we would just save some time for that because I have some thoughts. Particularly, yeah, absolutely. One of the things is like, you know, just that, that's a perfect example of it, is that September 11th till, you know, even into the following year, it was a very fair situation. I, I sold something in, couple apartments in Tribeca that I regretted uh, did under, under distress because I, I mean didn't need to I just was had such pessimistic outlook that was my first first negative market cycle but you know it, it, it totally came back right let's talk about architecture design things that you know inspire you and how you see things changing for the future what does the home of the future look like what do you think we will need and look for and what will be successful uh, going into the future and coming out of this? One of the things that I like to say for our design elements in our projects is that we, I guess we did a project with uh, Philip Johnson's firm, but for the most part, no star architects uh, per se, partly because we focused on projects that are sort of not super high end, right? So we're really going for high end that, that gets you, that's close to a signature high end experience. So one of the design outlooks is that we really believe in value engineering because we, that's, that is something that we know has to take place in order to hit your budgets uh, from where you start to where you end uh, to, to an actual built building. You're going to have to have value engineering. Uh, we like the value engineering that occurs in the design process so that it's uh, designers who can take a, you know, whether it's a, a less expensive material and use it in a, in a unique and distinctive way or to take a, an expensive approach but a more efficient implementation of it. So when you ask what it, it, I was thinking about, what it in, inspires me, I, I really think I, uh, of visiting the, the Bauhaus uh, school building, uh, Walter Gropius design building from the, I guess it must have been the 20s. I, I was driving through mm-hmm. southeastern Germany, like uh, graduate school, uh, going from Berlin to uh, Switzerland. And I was like, oh, look, I'm going through Dessau. I don't think anyone, I mean, most Germans haven't been to Dessau. I'll, that's, I <laughs> read about you know i studied architectural history so i should stop and see that see the, the buildings and i ended up not wanting to leave i spent the whole day just looking at these you know very i mean they were it wasn't supposed to be a high-end museum it wasn't a uh, certainly wasn't a high-end condominium it was a design school and using very simple material but you you would think it, it was built and been built yesterday because it was just I mean, it's a little, you know, it's a little worn, but the design was just like, wow, this is a real, and seeing it in the flash, I guess, but seeing it in the book is, is a big difference. Um, just, just, just like the, the efficiencies 
combined with the elegance, simplifying the there's strip windows, which we think of as you know, the cheapest windows in uh, you know as, re- as a residential developer. They just re- were, were implemented in such an elegant way that they look distinctive. There's a there's a curtain wall, but built in a very efficient way. So uh, mm-hmm. I think about that. I think about I love visiting case study houses. I don't know if you, you know those, but the uh, I had a friend who lived in a case study house. The case study houses were uh, in the 50s during the baby boom. There was an architecture magazine called Architecture and Arts or Arts and Architecture or something like that who made a proposition to, I guess, both established architects as well as up-and-coming ones, a challenge to design some housing for single-family houses uh, that were using simple materials at a low cost, a low cost point, and uh, but to use mid-century design, or not, that wasn't a mandate, but that was effectively what what happened in a way to create elegant, simple, and these are small houses, like fifteen hundred, two thousand, twenty-five hundred square foot houses. A lot in California, Pacific Palisades, Los Angeles, Palm Springs. They are. I had a friend who lived in one. I visited. There's a there's a famous one called the Stall House, which I've been to. Uh, there's there's some in Palm Springs, which I've been to. Really simple materials, brick and exposed wood joists, and simple lolly columns, uh, just pipe columns, but just put together in a super elegant, uh, minimalist way. And I just had always registered has always registered with me that you can with simple materials and if you get a designer who is committed to it can produce things that are really elegant it's not going to be you know you're not going to have i don't know i think herzog neuron 40 bond street with its ornate uh tracery of uh metal work that's not obviously a different different approach to elegance but the so we yeah we've always I've always liked that uh, trying to go for something that creates uh, an elegant outcome using uh, cost-effective materials. So yeah, I think what you're describing, I mean, uh, what you're describing is beautiful, and I agree a hundred percent with you. And I think most of the people listening to this, and I think most of the general public, would agree with you. Why do we see so little of this? I mean, we see so much bad architecture and design. And, you know, I think people buy it because there's not too much choice. But what you're describing sounds like a no-brainer to me. And it's exactly what people want, but it's not really delivered. I feel like we're delivering it. But, uh, you know, our current project is 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 a, a location, effectively, in Brooklyn Heights. That definitely dictated the more traditional outlook but even still we've it's it's traditional to a degree it's more traditional inspired but the we again we've really focused on using elegant materials put together in an efficient manner uh not too ornate even you know even and that's a challenge right you've got i really i mean like our kitchens in this uh, project are custom kitchens came out just really exemplified this idea that you can you can still be traditional 
it's, it's, you, know, you walk in, I don't, I don't know if you've been to our sales center, but the it's, it's clearly, it's got paneled, uh, uh, raised panels on the uh, mat lacquer kitchen cabinet doors, right? And, you know, you, it says, the paneling says traditional, but yet it's done in a, in a way that is, it's been streamlined and says it's a, it's a updated, a modern, modernist take on it. And yeah. I think that throughout the throughout the design, we, we have some crown molding, but it's not like with uh, dentals and and uh, acanthus leaves. It's it's just, it's more streamlined, but it still says crown molding. Ah, I got it. Traditional. There's you know, thought process behind it because we you know that's a that is a a way to. I mean, I have to be honest, you, you control costs because to do, you know, really, uh, do real plaster work is prohibitively expensive, right? But to do even the, the fiberglass molding of a quality that's going to be acceptable, like a Robert A.M. Stern, it's so expensive. So, you know, the design reflects the, you know, the goal of elegance, but also cost effectiveness. Right. Yeah, we've, we, well, know, I think that's smart. I think I think that's like if there's anything that the home of the future should exemplify, it's that it's smart, cost-effective, not over the top. I think today's buyer doesn't want to overpay for things. They don't want to pay for brands where it's unnecessary. They want to pay for the design and detail and spending the money in the right places. So. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward. To, I haven't toured the building. I'm really looking forward to it. Everything I've seen, it looks really magnificent. I'm looking forward to seeing your future projects. Is there anything, you know, before we end, uh, is there anything you wanted to add or, you know, any well, I, parting I, I, piece I, of I, advice? I wanted, to, I wanted to make my predictions. As I was yes, I, about yes, about I want to hear the predictions. Design elements that uh, the media is filled with, like, predictions about how uh, design is going to change post-COVID. So, you know, everyone's talking about additional focus on outdoor space, uh, private outdoor space. I, I mean, it's just like, yes, of course, but that's been a focus for 20 years. So I, I, I that, yes, maybe you'll have more balconies possible, Juliet balconies, but we, we I'm, I know you, I probably even have sat in design meetings where you've said this would really <laughs> be great here would be some Juliet balconies. And that wasn't uh, because of COVID. So that is definitely going to be uh, taking place, but it's it's nothing new. And I've seen um, the talk about flex spaces being that's going to be a new trend. That could be. I, I'm not sure it's going it's going to last. I mean, efficient apartments are always going to have a, a a market, and that that's always been our focus. If that efficient apartment can have a office niche or home office or a, a flex room. We've always always aimed for that. Why have a? I mean, we have one time we we had alcove studio. Why just why not just make it a, a one bedroom? It's but or if you know if you've got a uh, uh, some dead space in, in the in the center of the apartment, why not make it a built-in office? So that is a trend. I don't think that's a new thing, but it's that that certainly will will take place. Uh, one, I guess one thing, uh, mudrooms and, and foyers, it's funny because our, our project in, in, in Skirmarine Street, we do have, we've already got foyers in almost every apartment. That's a trend that, that might last. 
that's hard to say. That's a touch and go thing, uh, I, I'd say. But mm-hmm. it, it's certainly, well, you will will definitely have that. Like you know, you want to have a place where you can really decontaminate uh, or leave you know uh, a, a buffer from going into your main space. I've heard talk about uh, antimicrobial materials like copper and some uh, there's some solid surface solid surface uh, alternatives to corium that that may become uh, trendy, but I, I think that is, uh, that's less lasting. Uh, the lasting things I see, we're gonna see the touchless access throughout buildings. There's no reason, we, and we're adapting our building uh, right now to, to make it really, it, it should be easy to make buildings touchless entries so that you can whether you're a resident or a delivery person, you can, you can make it up to the apartment without touching any surface. And that, whether you have a doorman or no doorman, that you're going to see all over the place, whether it's offices or uh, residential. You know, we, we were looking at uh, these, got app-based elevator calling systems and uh, elevator uh, buttons that are called with a foot touch. The, that's one thing for sure. That's that's a lasting trend. There's no reason not to. COVID goes away. Why not maintain health at modest cost? Uh, implementing something that is good for health, whether it's just the flu or uh, or a cold, you can help avoid transfer of bacteria. Air filtering. I think that for common areas is going to end up in the building code and the building code doesn't sort of go backwards once uh, once they implement something from, you know, to address concerns. Legionnaire's disease uh, resulted in bu- uh, building code changes. This will be similar. So I think we're going to have uh, air filtering in common areas. And uh, I think there are going to be changes into bathroom exhaust. It's just exhaust that can be uh, ganged together between apartments. But, there'll, you know, there'll be changes to make sure and, and that'll be a building code thing that, that ends up lasting. So I guess these aren't these aren't yeah. great uh, monumental projections, but except for the touchless access, I think that's just going to be universal. Yeah, no, I think everything you're saying is that's it's like common sense. You know, it's not pie in the sky. It's kind of here and now, and I think would be really valued by homeowners. They're they're not gimmicks. They're things that I think will be long lasting. Technology is there. I think the consumer expects and wants these things and i think we'll pay a premium and put a value on them and i think that's going to be very important so yeah i agree with all of those coming from a building that doesn't have it yeah for sure yeah agreed well listen it's uh, i've taken up a lot of your time it's it's been no really great to uh, connect everything you said was was right on point and and invaluable um and very insightful I'm looking forward to touring your project in Brooklyn. It looks magnificent and wish you the best of luck coming out of this pandemic and look forward to seeing what else you, you guys bring to the market, uh, especially homes of the future and how that's going to you know, shape the way people live. I look forward to you know, working on projects with you too. That's what gets the, uh, the jazz going. Amen. And you, you will end it on a good word, jazz. Um, right, of course. <laughs> we, so, we Andrew, wandered over music uh, initially. Right, exactly. He, um, says, well, Steve Gans, he play, he plays too, right? 
He does, yeah. Fellow tenor man. We graduated at the new school together, so yeah. we're, we're still very close friends. We speak weekly, and um, yeah. So, definite connection between jazz and real estate. Or <laughs> <laughs> right. jazz and life at large. But um, it was really great chatting with you, and uh, thanks for taking up so much of your time. Uh, really appreciate it. It was very insightful. My pleasure. Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, we'll speak soon, and... Um, Stay healthy, be well, and, and take care of yourself and the family. Likewise to you too. All right, Andrew, thanks so much. Bye-bye.